As men, we can become preoccupied with financial success. I've certainly felt that at times myself. But the team and I have designed a quiz that's going to help you improve your intentions to achieve better results for your career and business. And there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. But for now, enjoy listening. A quick note before we get started. This episode features a description of a suicide attempt. If you're struggling, help is available through the Samaritans by calling 116-123. I let off no signs that I was struggling. I was surrounded by people that I loved and that loved me. Effectively, it was a farewell party to me that they didn't know nothing about. Welcome to Stories of Men Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. In this episode, we'll hear how a stranger's kindness saved a man in his darkest moment and how opening up to friends and family helped him cope with profound loss. For as long as Luke can remember, he'd wanted to join the army. He had his whole career mapped out. As soon as he turned 16, he left school and sent off his application. In no time at all, he was doing basic training. But 12 months in, tragedy struck. He suffered a bad knee injury and his lifelong dream came to an abrupt end. Luke went from job to job. He turned to alcohol. His life was spiralling out of control until one night in November 2018 when Luke made a decision. I was at a charity event at one of the local hotels, village hotel, for my friend's son, who's got quadruple cerebral palsy. And we was having a real good time. There was probably a hundred people there, all of which I knew because they were school friends. My wife or my girlfriend at the time was there. We bidded a few times and won a few things. Had a really good night, um, smiling and laughing all the way through. I knew full well that I didn't want to wake up the next morning. My full intentions was was to end it all that night. I'd planned everything. I'd convinced myself that I was a burden to everybody and that was the reason why I was doing what I planned to do. We had normal conversations. I didn't want anybody to know at all. I was supposed to be at work the next day. I was a bus driver. I let off no signs that I was struggling. I was surrounded by people that I loved and that loved me. Effectively, it was a farewell party to me that they didn't know nothing about. I left the hotel. I went by a petrol station, got a few more beers and continued my path and my walk. This was the early hours of the morning, five o'clock. It was really wet, but it was really, really warm. It was like really humid. It was like a really nice morning. I knew the sun would be coming up soon, an hour or so, and my intention or my plan was I was going to be gone by the time the sun came up. Strangely, I rang one person, and it was in a split-second decision that I just thought, I'm going to ring him, I'm going to let him know how I, f- how I feel, and I'm going to say goodbye because I feel like he's a good friend. The reason I rang him was because he, he lived in 
Boston, which was about an hour's drive from me. So I thought if if he says he's going to come, he won't be there in time anyway. I've already done what I wanted to do. It just seemed like I needed to catch up with him. I needed to speak to him. Within two rings, he answered the phone. The chances of him being up were, were quite slim, but for some reason he was. I remember saying to him, I'm feeling shit. Life's crap. There's nothing to live for. I'm going to go end it all. And I remember that, as drunk as I was, I remember that word for word. And he said, oh, come on, buddy, what's happened? What? Let's have a chat about it, because you're an awesome guy and you've got so much to live for. And I just remember that sort of, not arguing, but having a drunken debate with him saying, but I don't, because life's, life's shit, because I've been through all this and I've, I feel rubbish. And he said, yeah, but you've been through all that and you've come through and you, you're amazing. Do you know, you, you're great at what you do. You, you're the life and soul of the party. I said, but that, my party's over. And he said, your party hadn't even started. This is just the warm up." And he said, right, I'm jumping in my car. And I didn't want him to. I thought I'd convinced him not to. But it, actually, it turns out he had jumped in his car. He had set off. I'd put the phone down and he was speeding to sort of come and rescue me. So I'm speaking to one of the Humber Bridge guys at the, the toll booth. And this was the point where I probably started to slip and my, my facade started to to disappear and my act was obviously coming down and his supervisor comes over and goes oh is everything okay he goes oh yeah we're just having a chat I said oh yeah me and me and Dave I didn't even know his name I said me and Dave go back years that's when he started asking questions and is everything alright you're not planning on jumping I said yeah yeah I think I am I said and I started opening up to him strangely because I, I didn't know him and I'd gone up there for a specific reason and he said, no, no, don't, please, we can sort this. Sort of out of nowhere, the police turned up and they put me in the back of the police car. What about your mate? Your mate who's coming from Boston, what happened to him? We'll get back to the episode in a second. Before that, I just want to say... If you think this episode would be useful to a friend, send it along. You never know, it might just be the exact thing they're looking for today. And now back to the show. So I I then got taken to mental health assessment unit, ended up staying in there for a week, and I later found out after I'd been discharged from there after a short stay that he had he'd driven all the way across and couldn't find me. He actually admitted that he thought I'd done it because he couldn't get hold of me. My phone was just ringing. He thought I'd maybe put my phone down on the side, on the footpath, and, and then jumped. And So he, he was worried. He was massively, massively worried. And and my wife was come to see me in hospital. She said he'd reached out to her to ask how I was. And I felt really guilty because I'd put him through that. How did it make you feel when he's saying all these really nice things about you? Did you feel like did you feel like you deserved it? You didn't deserve it? I felt like he was just saying it to to keep me going and which worked for twenty minutes, twenty minutes on the phone. 
And I suppose actually looking back, it worked a lot more than just those 20 minutes because I'm still here. It felt really strange because I didn't feel any of those things that he was telling me. I couldn't see that to be true. And he, he maybe thought it was a cry for help, which I suppose looking back it was. I needed somebody to stop me. And I can only say that upon reflection, and I've said it a few times before, because I have got a lot to live for. I was the life and soul of the party. And everything he was saying was genuinely true in that phone call. In terms of all the experiences that you'd gone through, it sounds like you didn't feel like you, you felt less of a man. Absolutely. Um, I've always been in male-orientated jobs, sort of the army, various college courses I did was like railway engineering, car mechanics, um, sort of I've worked in vehicle dealerships, I've worked in vehicle rentals, I've worked on the docks, I've in heavy haulage, I've worked on the buses as a driver and sort of speaking about problems wasn't an option. Even as, as a child, I'm, I'm the youngest of, of three boys, so we was a, a very male-orientated household. And I did feel less of a man at the time, I think, because I didn't speak about it. And I didn't think that was the right thing to do as a man. I didn't think we spoke about our emotions. I thought, okay, no one else can be feeling this way, surely. Surely I'm the only person in the world, let alone the only man, but I'm the only person in the world that feels like I've got the, the weight of the world on my shoulders. And I, I felt like I couldn't control my masculinity despite being covered in tattoos almost head to toe. I'm not a huge gym goer, so I, I don't really lift that much. I don't look massive, um, but I am physically fit. I run a lot. I, I've always run a lot, sort of despite my, my struggles. I've always kept relatively fit, so I look, yeah, I look like a man, and I feel like a man. But at the time, I just didn't feel, I didn't feel anything, whether that was masculine or not. I just didn't feel that I should have felt that way. I, I thought it was totally abnormal for anybody to feel this way. Isn't it interesting that when we're going through struggles as men, we think that we are unique and no one else is feeling the same way that we're feeling right now. And no one would understand because I felt like that before that I'm from a very similar background to you in, in like a working class background, a place called Atherton in Greater Manchester. And I mean, obviously things have come on a little bit, you know, and there are, there is progress being made in 2022, but 10 years ago or even 15, 20 years ago, even being back at, back at high school, I'm 35. So I'm a few years older than you, but that from that kind of time, you don't you don't reach out and let people know how you're feeling, especially your your mates. Because I don't know about you, but you'd be worried if you told your mate something at school or whatever. You you couldn't rely on him hundred percent not to start telling other people. You've got this sense of regret then because it wasn't a safe space. Yeah, that's it, and it, a sense of trust. I suppose you you lose that trust if before you've even said anything, you just feel that that trust will be broken if you tell somebody something and it goes further than you wanted it to. And the stigma around men and struggling is still huge. There's still a lot, a lot of work to do. And like you say, even at school, say something to the wrong person or you say something to someone who you think's the right person and you get a load of get a load of grief for it, whether it be what we know now as banter or bullying. Do you know, there's there's a very fine line, isn't there? And I think before anybody wants to be bullied, 
they want to be part of the banter. So you say things that make people laugh rather than, oh, God, yeah, Luke's feeling a bit crap. We'll avoid him because he's just going to bring the mood down. He's been a right negative person lately. And you don't want that because you don't want people to change their views of you. Well, that's certainly how I felt. And even going into adulthood and the jobs that I'd done, like I say, they were, they were for strong men and you've got to be in the army. If you're going to be in the army, yeah, you must be strong. You must be must be a proper man's man. And yeah, I suppose I am, but I've still got emotions. I've still got feelings. I only know that now. Do you know at the time I didn't? Obviously, that's why I, I went down that path of, of choosing not to want to live anymore. What was it that you think led you to those particular jobs that are considered quite masculine? I'd always wanted to join the army and I'd, I'd never felt any less of a man or any more of a man when I was in, when I was serving. Um, I've, obviously, I felt a lot of pride in what I did for, for the military and a lot of people say for queen and country. Um, I knew full well that I was signing up with the potential of going to a war zone. I knew that. I didn't think that was going to make me any more of a man. Um, it was probably going to make me more proud as a person. I wanted to make people proud. Who, who doesn't want to make people proud? And I think every job after that, it's just where my skill set led me. And I wasn't bothered that it was male-orientated. I wouldn't have been bothered if it was female-orientated. What was the turning point for you after you spent that week in the Mental Health Assessment Centre and you know, you're obviously a completely different man nowadays to the you know the guy I'm speaking to now as opposed to in in 2018 so what were the what were the steps to recovery I think so I I briefly mentioned sort of we've had a a big discussion about the the 2nd of November or the early hours of the 3rd of November 2018 but on Christmas day 2017 I'd been up there before I'd, I'd tried to take my life it was my daughter's first Christmas that that Christmas and I thought I'd done everything after that that I could to improve myself. And then, like I say, 11 months later, I'm, I'm there with the same mindset. But what had changed, the only one thing that had changed, actually, in those 11 months was at first I could see everybody's life better off without me in it. That was on Christmas Day, 2017. In the November 2018, the only people's lives I couldn't picture better without me in it was my children. And whilst I was in hospital, my my partner and my children and my parents come to visit me every single day, twice a day. And that was the turning point for me. I needed to do something that I hadn't done before to enable me to, or to enable my children to still have a dad. And as selfish as it sounds, I needed to do everything I could just for them. Nobody else, just for them. And yeah, I went through that and I I finally got a diagnosis of severe depression and anxiety. And that's this is while I was in the, the mental health assessment unit. And I remember just giving a huge sigh of relief as if to say, I'm glad that I've got that. I don't, I don't like to be labelled. Um, I'm, I'm not my diagnosis at all. I'm not a huge fan of diagnosis. But there was a reason then for the way I was feeling. There was a reason the way I was acting and I was reassured and I still am reassured by these words that I'm not alone. I'm not the first person that's going to be in that mental health assessment unit. I'm certainly not going to be the last. And unfortunately I've had to take that on board and, and understand that there is other people in there 
there is other people going through stuff. And I I was introduced to Andy's Man Club, and I, I firmly believe that Andy's Man Club saved my life. Um, although I've got to be open and honest, all Andy's Man Club does is open doors. There's You don't talk about um, politics, religion, and medication in there, so people aren't suggesting you've got to turn to this religion or try this medication. It's just a safe place for men to talk and like-minded men is the most important thing that other people are struggling. It's a, a place, there's 110 clubs across the country now. So there's a 110 places across the UK where people can talk, where men over the age of 18 can talk about the problems with other men that have had similar problems or that have previously or currently. And it's just a, a good place to socialize, which is what I needed. I, I don't drink alcohol anymore. Um, four years sober as of 4th of November, 2018. My last drink was on the 3rd up on the Humber Bridge. And it's strange. My, my life is completely different. Mm. I was curious about your your friendship with the guy from Boston because there's something really beautiful about when you have a a, a great bond with a bond with any kind of people. But I crave the the male friendships that I've got in my life and and the kind of the magic that comes from the conversations and the shared experiences and all of that. How's your relationship with him nowadays? And and when was the you know when did you have that chat with him about the fact that you know you're you're still here. You're you're going to put all the necessary work in to improve your life for your kids' sake, for but also for your own. I, I can't remember when we had that conversation, but we we have had it, and it's really strange. Actually, I I speak to him more now than I did in, in 2018. I speak to him almost every other week at the minute, and the reason I want to keep him anonymous is because I have set up my own mental health support organization since my struggles, which is awesome. <clears throat> and he, he supported me from day one. But actually, I'm now supporting him through some tough times that he's having. But he's, he's been on board my, my organization since day one. And I think what I get from him is he is a man's man. He's a lad's lad. Like, I, I'll be open and honest, I've not slept with that many people. I've never had an affair, never cheated on my partner. He was doing all these things that, you know, are wrong. But as a lad, you know, it's it's the lad's thing to do, like the proper lad's lads thing to do. And he was doing that. And I, I found it cool to watch. I have got other friends that are, are like that. And I just, I suppose I was inspired by his confidence to to go out and do these things. Although I did tell him, look, mate, that's, that's ridiculous. I, I can't believe you're treating your girlfriend like that. But yeah, and I think... That, that's why I was drawn to him. We just had that energy. Where I had the the high active energy, he had the go out party lifestyle energy yeah. and do what do what you do on a night out. I've had mates like that, and you sometimes you question when they are all about the pursuit of seducing a woman. You think to yourself, "Are you doing this because you really want to seduce that woman, or are you doing it because you want to show off or brag to your mates or?" Show your mates, or oh, look at me, I'm I'm such a ladies' man. Yeah, and that's what I think it is. And that's what I think it is with a lot of people, not just him. Um, and I, the way that I just described that was probably totally disrespectful to women. And I don't mean it like that. He, he's a top guy, and he did it with, with the utmost respect. And I, I just think it was his energy. And again, it, it probably was more about 
the bragging points and the bed notches, I don't think it looks any good. And future partners definitely won't think it's any good. But I, and I, I don't condone what he's done. I just enjoyed his energy because I was the total opposite. I've never been a ladies' man. I've never cheated on a partner. And I just, that's probably why we connected because I was trying to, he knew that he didn't want to do it. He knew it, it probably was for bragging points. And I was the one saying, well, stop doing it then. Just have a good time with the lads. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing how he's helped you through your dark times and then you're able to repay that, that support and that, that loving friendship that he provided to you that day. Yeah. And I think, like I say, it's special because we met on holiday and you don't normally keep in touch for, for this long to continue that relationship for over a decade and to then book future holidays with them. I think there's something special there. Yeah, absolutely. How's your relationship with your kids now? Incredible. Really, really incredible. How old are they? My eldest is 11. Just started secondary school today. And my youngest is... Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's buzzing. And I I wouldn't have got to see that had I been been able to carry out what I planned. And I I feel selfish now looking at that. But actually, in that time, I was doing that for them because I could picture their life better off without me in it. And my daughter, yeah, uh, fantastic. Daddy's little girl, I'm wrapped around a little finger. Happy to admit that. <laughs> As the way it should be. 100%. Um, yeah, I, I'll do everything for her. And she does literally nothing for me apart from brings joy to my world, and it's awesome. But in the midst of that, sort of after our 11-year-old was born, just 11 months after he was born, me and my partner went through a stillbirth and the consequences of that added to part of the traumas of my life and the reasons why I did what I did and wanted to end my life, particularly on Christmas Day, because it's all about family. And I I couldn't bear to wake up another morning without him being here. And although that was one of the reasons why I, I ended up doing what I did, mm. it's it's also consequently forced, un, I say forced, forced me and my partner, my wife now, to to wrap both of our children in cotton wool because we know how precious life is and we don't want anything to, to damage or hurt them whilst we still want them to have a, a life full of joy and, and socialising, which they do. They, mm. They've got everything. They've got probably more than a lot of people. We're, we're very, very lucky and they're very lucky and... I make them know that they're very lucky mm. for, for what they do have and the friends that they have and the opportunities they have. Um, but yeah, it, it's forced us to to be more, a lot more cautious. And I think naturally, I think other people in, in my situation would probably do the same. My last question today is, where's Dave? Where's Dave? I'm not sure. I'd like to bump into him. I'd like to speak to him and, and sort of thank him. I hope he's okay. I hope he's, he's still been an awesome, awesome guy. I, the job can't have been that glamorous, just charging people £3 every car that comes up, just £3, please. That, that was all he said. You know, There was probably no conversation outside of that. I'd love to take him for a drink. Although I don't drink, I'm happy to stand in a pub and let him churn away to me. I'd, I'd like to think that he'd be pleased with where I am now. Like I say, I, I work for the NHS within mental health. I've set up my own mental health organisation. I'm a facilitator at Andy's Man Club. I'd like to think he'd be pleased that just that 
gibberish conversation that I had with him was enough to to save my life and pressing that button underneath the counter that I didn't know existed was enough to, to give me a second chance. If I was at the party Luke was at, it would appear to be that he's enjoying himself, everything's fine. But it really illustrates to me and to all of us that there's something very different sometimes that's beneath the surface. Luke's episode shows that your support network can come from the most unlikely of places. The friend who was willing to travel so far in the car to make him realize that he had so much to live for. The guy working in the toll booth who pressed that panic button. And even the police were there to help him. And it shows that there's goodness in everyone. We all want to help each other. Throughout his life, Lucas had all these traditionally masculine jobs. And now he's working in a position that's considered perhaps more traditionally feminine where he's allowing men to open up and speak about their feelings. Luke being vulnerable and speaking to others about how he was feeling has really unlocked everything for him in his life. It's ultimately saved him and it's given him a new professional direction. And it's also strengthened the relationship with his wife and his kids. What could opening up to others unlock in your life? I mentioned at the start about us as men caring a lot about financial success. The truth is, we all want to make money and excel in our work. But understanding what drives us to our definition of success is important. That's why the team and I have designed a simple, easy quiz that's going to help you learn a lot about yourself and help set realistic targets for success. It takes less than three minutes to complete. We as men can be incredibly successful, driven individuals, but how we get there is important to understand particularly for our mental health. Through the man quiz, you'll answer questions about your identity as a modern man. The aim is to better understand who you are to achieve the results you want in your life and work. Click the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.